Well, here in Nehemiah 5 and 6, we've got to the point where Nehemiah is coming to the end of building the wall, but there's all kind of things that come up that distract him. And it's a, a tremendous example, the, these two chapters, of a servant of God, a man of God, focusing upon the work he has been given from God, regardless of opposition from the world and regardless of politics and attention from amongst other members of the children of God. So, once he's focused on building the wall, there's a famine going on, in the end of verse 3, and some of the Jews had really manipulated the, the rest of them, who are desperate and hungry, and had taken usually big interest from them, um, and had got hold of their land off them, uh, and had uh, done all the things we, we read in the first part of, of chapter 5. And so, th there's this huge problem. And verse 5, there was a great cry of the people. Now, those two words, a great cry of the people of Israel, the other time you encounter this is with Israel and Egypt making a great cry to God uh, because of the, the bondage and abuse that they were experiencing at the hand of the Egyptians. And reading through this, this section, I see a number of sort of allusions to uh, Israel suffering in Egypt. Verse 5, we are brought into bondage. Israel were in bondage in Egypt. And then in, in verse 12, when the Jews who were abusing them say, okay, we will stop, they say, so we will do as you say. And actually, later on, they unfortunately go back on their word. This is exactly the words of Pharaoh. I will do as you say, and let, your, let God's people go, but then he goes back on it. Then, at the time, anyway, when they are released from their bondage, verse 13, all the congregation said, Amen, and praise the Lord. They worshipped. This is exactly Israel at the Red Sea, once they were out of Egypt. So, the point is, the point of all these Egypt delusions, I think, is that the people of Israel, the, the leaders of the people, or those that were in power, were acting like the Egyptians, and were therefore abusing their own people. Now, Nehemiah makes the point all the time that you shouldn't be doing this. Verse 9, uh, you, you didn't ought to do this, you should uh, walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies. And he, he says this a couple of times. His point is that, look, the real division is between us and the world, not between ourselves as members of the people of God and that principle time and again we have to bear in mind that the division between light and darkness is between those that are in Christ and those that are in the world and yet so often within the politics of small time Protestant groups that uh, I guess we're associated with so often the division actually between believers is even stronger than the division that there should be between us and, and the world the line is drawn in the wrong place. Now, that does not mean that all these poor Jews who were being abused were, you know, all wonderful people. Because reading chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 and 4, when it says that um, because we're hungry, we need corn that we may eat and live and we've given up our lands and our houses so that we might buy corn, verse 3, because of the famine. 
This is exactly the language of Egypt at the time of Joseph. You remember the Egyptians did that. They gave their land eventually to, to Pharaoh. And uh, they needed to buy corn because of the dearth, because of the famine. Uh, and so the whole thing sort of uh, works another way. That yes, the leaders of the Jews were acting like the Egyptians acted to the Jews, but also the ordinary Jews were also here described as the Egyptians. Now these allusions I think are valid and are intended to be seen. The point is they were all acting in a very worldly way. Egypt being uh, being a symbol of, of, of the world. And so why was there this famine? Well, Haggai who was a prophet contemporary with the situation, he explains exactly why there was a famine. He says, you came back from Babylon to, to Judah looking for much, and you didn't get anything. You didn't get what you, what you hoped for. You earned wages, and it was like putting, them into, putting money into a bank that's got holes in. And you've got a famine because God is not pleased with you. So they had come back, I think, not motivated by a genuine desire to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They came back thinking there's something good in it for me, that we can go back there with all this support materially from, from the kings of Persia, and we can grab a bit of land for ourselves and build our little homestead on it, and uh, it's all going to be pretty cool. And I think that's why Ezra had such a problem earlier getting Levites to come back, even to delay his departure date, because he just didn't have any Levites to take with him on, on that particular trip. So the people got involved in this restoration, it seems from what Haggai says, for the wrong motives, because they thought there was something in it for them. And that's why I think the temple that they were supposed to build, as outlined in the last chapters of Ezekiel, was not built because they just did the minimum. And all the time it was so difficult to get them to really actually do the work that was intended, which was the rebuilding of Jerusalem and of the temple. They all grabbed their bit of land and were satisfied with that. And, as I say, that's why there was a famine, because their motives were wrong. They thought that they would go back, Haggai says, expecting much, expecting personal benefit. And in this we, we see... a a very analogous situation all down the centuries to our own situation that people can get involved with the things of God with the work of God's people ostensibly for the right motives doing externally apparently the right thing when actually their motives are quite different when there's some human attraction for example you might be a young person and you're attracted to this church because there's an active uh, youth group there and you've got your eye on some fellow or some, some pretty girl there. Or you might uh, be a poor person and you're attracted to this church because they all seem to be fairly wealthy and you think, well, I might just meet the right people, get in with the right crowd, lift myself up a bit in, in life. There's another reason. Or you may be living in a non-English speaking country and uh, the missionaries come and have their meetings in English and you think, oh, it's, it's good to be in with English speaking people, I can practice my English, I can get friends in the West, etc. All these motives are there and when we, we try to examine our own motives, we come up, if we're honest, with the fact that not one of us 
not one of us is completely, is completely, totally, I think, sincere in that sense. We, of course, think we are. But, of course, we, we tend not to look at our lives as we should. And it's one, example, one advantage of breaking bread that we are caught up short, really, in front of the cross of Jesus. And really, we are to examine our motives. Why am I here? What am I involved in all this for? Because they would have thought that, well, we're obeying the commands to flee Babylon and go back and rebuild the temple, all jolly good stuff, when clearly enough, Haggai says, their motives were that I will get much for myself. And so that's why they had a famine, because God was not pleased with that, and the real work of God was not really done, or it was done really with a lot of pressure and bullying, as it were, from faithful men like Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, all the same, despite that situation, where the majority of people, if you like, in the ecclesia and the church of that time, were, it seems, badly motivated, and I've shown the allusions to the situation at the time of Joseph and at the time of the Red Sea, all indicate that they were all Egyptian. They were very worldly. But Nehemiah says in verse 10, I pray you, let us leave off this usury, leave off this getting of interest and benefit out of each other. He counts himself amongst the guilty. And this is a theme in both Ezra and Nehemiah, that their prayers to God reveal that they considered themselves as part of guilty Israel. Nehemiah talks about how he blushes to lift up his face before God because of all the sins of, uh, of the, the people of God at that time. And that in itself it is quite an exhortation that we are in this together that God's plan of salvation is based around saving a community of people called the body of Christ and our salvation is therefore part and parcel of the community's salvation that is why even if you feel that you're surrounded by a situation where other believers are not sincere and have got all kind of other motives and are really acting like they're Egyptians, like they're still in the world, all the same, that is the situation that God has put you in, and you cannot cut yourself off from God's people. Of course, it's so tempting that so many people have done it in one way or another. We will not have fellowship with them, they can't come here and break bread and all this kind of thing, but that, that is all missing the point, that Christ is indivisible, and the body of Christ is, in that sense, totally indivisible. Now, Nehemiah was a man of integrity, and he could say to them, look, <clears throat> I have not done this. And he goes on to explain at the end of chapter 5 how he had, uh, he may had a big uh, meal prepared, uh, more than a meal, like a feast almost, every day, and he shared it with uh, all the other Jews, and he says in verse 17, besides those that came unto us from among the heathen that are about us. Obviously, the Babylonians and Persians had shifted a whole load of uh, non-Jews into the land. They later became the Samaritans. And according to all the restoration prophecies, especially in Isaiah, the returning exiles were supposed to be a light to those Gentile people, to attract them to the God of Israel. Now, sadly, as we know from the record here in Nehemiah, Israel didn't do that. The Jews didn't do that. They traded with them. Uh, they became compromised, as we just read in chapter 6. But, despite that, Nehemiah, 
was, in his own example, a light to the world. He opened his table, <clears throat> not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles that are about us, and they came and ate at his table, just like Jesus did. You know, he ate with publicans and sinners, and eating together was seen in the time of Nehemiah and certainly by the time of Jesus as a religious act. And he did that in order to lead sinners to repentance, not in order to show that they had arrived at some, some point where they were good enough for him. So the simple point is that even if you feel that all those in your ecclesial situation slightly don't get it, or even worse, you can still, you can still live kingdom principles. And that's what Nehemiah does, does here. So then, going on then to, to chapter 6, they're coming now to the... Uh, the time when the, the wall is really about to be finished. And he gets, of course, Nehemiah gets all this opposition from the, the surrounding people, uh, Sambalat and Geshem, Tobiah, etc. They threaten him with death. They try to compromise him by getting him to go into the temple uh, because they say, you're going to be killed. Your only safe place is in the temple. And he says, no, should such a man as I flee, verse 11, and who is there that, being as I am, would go into the temple to save his life? could be reasoned from that language that he was, in fact, a eunuch, and he realized that he himself could not go into the temple. Uh, that's just in passing. There's some other evidence uh, about Nehemiah being a eunuch, but we'll um, I'll go into that right, right now. But the point is, he says, I cannot. I'm not going to get involved with your threats. I will not fear you, uh, ultimately. And he says, verse 3, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while well, I leave it and come down to you? And they make all kinds of allegations. Verse 7, you've appointed prophets to preach of you that there is a king in Judah. Well, <laughs> of course, there was a king in Judah, and that was God. In fact, the Persian king had talked about the God of Jerusalem. May the God of Jerusalem bless you, he said in the time of Ezra. So, yes, there was a king in Judah. And yes, that was understood, even by the Persians. And it's very clear from the restoration prophecies in Isaiah particularly that Yahweh was king in Zion, king in Jerusalem. That was the whole point. But, of course, they twisted it to say, well, you're saying that you're the king and that you're therefore in opposition to the Persian Empire, so we're going to get you in trouble. And then, verse 16, uh, sorry, uh, 17 and 18, the leaders of Judah are in touch with Tobiah. They've intermarried, verse 18, with these people. It all gets family politics, and they, verse 19, they try to tell Nehemiah what a good guy this evil man uh, Tobiah is, and they uttered my words to him. They report back to the enemy, as it were, everything that Nehemiah says. He's got to be careful in his words, knowing that this is going to be repeated. This is going to be taken out of context. You know, the situation is so similar to so much church politics that probably we've all seen and some of us have spent our lives exposed to. Threats, willful misrepresentation, letters, endless demands for meetings, 
reporting your words, family politics, oh yeah, well they're intermarried with this one, and yeah, that's their relative, and all this kind of stuff, so they're going to support them. And what's Nehemiah's perspective on that? I'm not going to get involved, he says, because I'm doing a great work. I'm not going to take my eyes off that work. And he does it. The, the wall is finished. This is really, you know, right through all these centuries, up to our time, you know, nearly two and a half millennia, up to our time, this is speaking to so many of us today, that all the things of church politics shall end. They shall come to their end in this life. But the work that we do for God is what will last. And so many people, so many people, some people who at one stage were some of the finest brethren that, that I've known, stumbled because of all this. They stumbled because of all the letters and the meetings and, uh, and the reporting back of words and the twisting of things and the family politics that that family won't stick up for principle because, well, they're intermarried with such and family and all the rest of it. And yet he focused upon his work that he had to do. So we also want that focus. But of course the question is, well, what's my work? You know, nobody asked Nehemiah to repair the wall. He didn't have a vision one night that said, Nehemiah, go and repair the wall. He himself was moved to do that by his own desire to fill the gap, to, to see, well, that needs doing. I shall do it. And I suggest that we each have callings in life, which are not given to us specifically, but the perceptive mind will notice them, that yes, that is something that needs doing. I shall do that. We've all been given talents in that parable of the talents or the weights. Each of us have been given a certain amount of, of money, as it is in the story, to go and do something with. And woe betide us if when the Lord comes back we just say, yeah, well, I didn't do anything. Because of the letters, because of the politics, because of this, that and the other. Because it's the man who does nothing, who is rejected. And I think the, uh, the element of unreality in that parable, and all the parables have an element of unreality, uh, which is like a signpost to the, the point of it, the element of unreality there is that Jesus seems pretty tough with the guy because the guy hasn't wasted the talent in the sense that he spent it on himself or went out and had a good time with it, like the prodigal son. He hasn't done that. He's looked after it and he gives it back to the Lord. And the Lord says, huh, you reject it. Get out of here. Now, the point is, he didn't do anything with it. We have been given so much. <clears throat> we have been given far more than we might imagine. And we are to do something with it. So, yes, have a passion in your life. You are called to do something, probably to, to do many things. I mean, building the wall was only part of Nehemiah's life. And insofar as you focus on that, you will find that despite all the opposition you will find that God will provide you the resources to do it, as he did to Ezra and Nehemiah, to do what they felt called to do. And he will somehow bless you. When we looked at Ezra 7 a while ago, we saw how Ezra felt moved to go and teach God's law to the people in Israel, uh, in Judah. And the king gives him an open check, a blank check, every blessing that he could want. Take as much gold as you want from wherever you want, basically. Um, the treasurers in the local provinces are to support you. You don't have to pay tax on it. You, and anything else you want, you just ask, you get it. Now, 
if you want really to do God's work, he will provide for it. But you will find a huge amount of opposition. And, you know, take it from me, I really am speaking from decades of experience in this. The, the lesson is to focus upon what you have been called to do and what you feel called to do. Because as, as I say, you won't necessarily get a vision at night that tells you to go do something. Ezra and Nehemiah, on their own initiative, decided to do the things they did. In Nehemiah's case, to build the wall around Jerusalem. If you don't know what your calling is, ask God to show you. Ask him to prod you. And also, if I might say so, open your eyes to life and to human need, and I think you will see it. Now, Nehemiah was not indifferent to all this. I mean, he, he did get to him. He says, verse 9, Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. And God did that. And when finally he does build the wall, he says in verse 16, They perceive that this work was wrought of our, of our God. And yet it's very often said, this word wrought, uh, it's very often used about the working of the builders uh, building the wall of the temple. Uh, of Jerusalem. So then they worked, but God worked through them. And you will see that. You will experience that. In that, in a sense, it is you working, but it is God working through you, and he will strengthen your hands. Now, what do you do with opposition? Well, verse 14, My God, think upon Tobiah and Sambalat according to these their works. You might expect him to say, God, judge them. God, do something mean to them. But he doesn't. He says, think. God, please think about these people. He uses the same idea in chapter 5, verse 19, where he says, think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. When we talk about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is his thinking and also his power. Because the word spirit is very wide, as you know. It, it can mean the spirit of a person is how they think, is who they are in essence. And yet the spirit of God is also his power. But it's not simply spirit equals power, sort of naked power. It, God's actions, which he does by his power, are a reflection of his spirit in the sense of his mind, of how he thinks. So Nehemiah asks God to think. In other words, to act. So God is, of course, looking at all of us. And we can invite God, we should be able to invite God to think upon me, as he does in chapter 5, verse 19, and against his opposition in chapter 6, verse 14, God, and think about them as well. Knowing that that thinking of God, that spirit of God, if you like, comes out in action, in power. So then, as we come to think about Jesus in his time of dying, this, I think, is an appropriate uh, thought to have in mind, not so much about other people, but about ourselves in chapter 5, verse 19, my God, think about me, think upon me for good. And we can only really say that if we have a, a clear conscience, if we know that what we have put our hand to for him, what is the, the guiding force in our life, the guiding motive in our life, not to get rich, not our career, that you know, our religion is not just a hobby, it's not just something we add on. We're not just in this, or we shouldn't just be in it like the Jews were going back to rebuild the temple uh, for a host of human 
reasons. But I'm here because I love you, God, and because I love you, Lord Jesus, and because I have devoted myself to you and to your work as I perceive it. And that is my little calling in my life to serve you. And if only that can be our perspective, somehow, somehow, everything falls into place, even the opposition from within the house of God, the community of believers, from the world, the lack of resources, etc., all these things somehow come come to place, get, get, come into their place, if we are wholeheartedly devoted to, as it were, building the wall around Jerusalem, or going back, teaching the people, as was, as was uh, mission. Once you get it clear what your calling is, and you decide that this is what I shall do, and if you are correctly motivated, not going back to rebuild the temple because you think you might end up with the property and with a good harvest and a nice life, but if you're genuinely motivated, as at this time I believe Ezra and Nehemiah were, then somehow all things will work together for good. And you can say to God, before his son crucified, before the bread and wine, as it were, that symbolized that, think upon me my God for good.